We now present Willard Cantillon, internationally known speaker, speaking on the subject, the New World Money System. And now, Willard Cantillon. Don't buy gold. Tomorrow it may not buy your lunch. Only four classes of people desire gold. The greedy, the frightened, the French, and the country folk. Gold is nothing but barbarous metal. No, I'm not advising you with these extreme words. I am merely quoting. You probably recognize the names of the famous men that I have quoted. Not illiterate fools of a past era, their voices are considered some of the most influential in today's monetary world. But I would like to add, if gold is barbarous metal, then 95% of our modern-day populace retains the barbarous spirit with a love for the precious metal running riot in their veins. Perhaps gold is a barbarous metal. If we look back on the scenes of March the 14th, 1968, we remember the stampeding crowds which in an explosion of emotion shoved and screamed and cursed as they crowded their ways into the sub-basement of the Paris Stock Exchange building or the counters of London where gold was sold. They resembled anything but a refined business transaction. On that day in March in 1968 when housewives and astute businessmen, peasants and professional brokers change more than $240 million worth of paper currency for 200 tons of gold. This swelled the supply the hoarders had gathered in four months to almost $3 billion, two and a half times what California had mined in 25 years. If we look back over America's record for two decades, we see a nation of unparalleled wealth, holding 50% of the world's wealth, 70% of the free world's gold, 50% of the world's productive power in the hands of 7% of the world's population. But in a few years, the gold from Fort Knox and from the sub-basement of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York had dwindled to only 30% of the free world gold. Yes, in 10 years alone, $672 million worth of gold a year had eroded from the American gold reserves. If we had hours or days to speak on this subject, we would methodically step by step trace the story of why America's gold has dwindled and the gold of Britain. We could give the basic reasons why many declare it never again will return to its respected place as man's most cherished medium of exchange. Ah, but our moments in this address are very few and precious. The great question is, what will be the nature of the new system? When will it be established? What will happen to the present currencies of the world? Before we deal with these vital questions concerning our future, would you allow me a moment, please, to linger still in the past? If we go back 3,000 years and visit an ancient city like Babylon, we might see a man depositing his private gold for security or convenience reasons in the hands of a reliable person. That person would give to the owner a piece of leather on which was stamped a seal or receipt from his gold. This is where banking had its early beginning in the simple days of the long-distant past. 
As late as 1609, the Bank of Amsterdam still charges customers a fee for storing gold. In 1821, England was the first world power to go on what we call the gold standard. The Bank of England was the custodian of the people's gold. The government issued paper currency called pounds, and these pound notes were as good as gold. The bearer at will could exchange the same for a fixed amount of precious metal at the Bank of England. But in 1931, Britain left the gold standard and launched on managed economy. If we turn our eyes to U.S. history, we go back in 1870 when America went on the gold standard. When Justice Clifford declared the purpose of the Constitution was to provide an irrepealable and permanent standard of value. In 1913, a second level of banking was created in America, the Federal Reserve System. The Federal Reserve System, of course, still exists today with its banks in a dozen American cities. And these banks have a very unique position and power over the 14,000 banks that serve the American general public. The Federal Reserve Bank not only serves the government, it in a sense may be called the bank's bank, for it controls the flow and the value of currency to the private commercial bank. In 1934, America left the gold standard, demanding the citizens of the nation turn in their gold to the Federal Reserve Bank. The government became the owner of the gold, giving the bank certificates for the precious metal. Perhaps the rank and file of American people did not appreciate the changes taking place in 1934. The gold coins, which an American prior to this could hold in his hand, he no longer can reach. It was now at least three steps away from him, first in the private bank, then the federal bank, then the legislation controlling the latter, and also the private bank. And even though man may not have agreed or appreciated the transitions of his nation in 1934, at least he could understand what was taking place. For the power of control was in the hands of his own elected leadership and officers. Ah, but then we come in post-war years to a great change as a third level of banking is established outside of the nation, the international banking. Names began to appear on world horizons. First, there was the monumental meeting in the Western powers at Bretton Woods on that spring day of 1944. It was here the International Monetary Fund was born. First, the membership included only a few nations, but soon the number grew, 29, 45, and then 107. Simultaneously to this, the sister organization was born, the World Bank. And within the IMF was formed the gold pool with U.S., Britain, Belgium, Netherlands, France, Italy, Switzerland, West Germany, holding 65% of the free world's gold. Following the formation of the IMF, the World Bank, and the gold pool came the Group 10, including Britain, America, Belgium, Netherlands, France, Italy, Germany, Sweden, Canada, and Japan. These ten leading industrial powers would now have a major voice in shaping world economy. One thing seemed crystal clear. Whether one lived and studied trends from the common market of Europe or the alliances at home or abroad, the move was toward central control. And more gathered 2,000 strong in America's capital. The banner across the platform read, World Peace 
by world law. By the fall of 1967 in Rio, speakers of the International Monetary Fund recommended the use of special drawing rights, SDRs, ersatz or substitute money. And by March the 17th of 1968, members of the free world leaders of the gold pool made the momentous announcement from Washington, D.C., announcing a two-tier price gold system. One price of gold for the monetary held in the hands of the governments of the gold pool. The other, the open price on gold for the free market. Two weeks after this from Stockholm, Sweden, members of the Group 10 made another momentous announcement. This would be the beginning on an international level of paper gold that would be used as a substitute for money. Rather an elusive name, paper gold. Intriguing, but a little deceiving. It is neither paper nor is it gold, but only a figure ledgered on the page of the record of man. But this paper gold or figure entered into the international books of credit would be considered the special drawing right for the member nations within that international club of the IMF. I observed in our travels across the world three basic reactions to all of this announcement of these new names and these new records and these new organizations. First, one attitude could care less. Why, they said, eat, drink, and be merry, long as we have a roof over our head and someone to give us food and lodging. A second group could be considered, perhaps a minority group of sober-minded intellectuals. These hailed the new systems with great joy. This group knew full well the world had outgrown the old and the obsolete money systems man was now trying to use. The dollar, they said, had its origin in 1525 when the good Count of Schlick in Bohemia mined and minted a, a coin out of silver called the Joachimsthaler, which later was to become the name for our dollar, but a system undoubtedly that began four centuries back. And the British shilling, equally if not more ancient to the American dollar, had its origin with the Norsemen invading British soil. When they desired commodities of life, they would trade their silver trinkets and jewelry called shillingus for what their hearts desired, and so the shilling was born. These systems served well for several centuries when world population was small, when there was little if any need for change, when nations like individuals were self-contained and independent. Ah, but in the post-war years, the world suddenly became a community interlocked with international trade, trade which increased almost double in 10 years' time. I've sat in some of the meetings when a thousand delegates of many lands have wrestled in vain with the unsolved problem of trying to make $60 billion, which was the volume of gold and currencies and credits, serve an expanded world trade which had crossed the 150 billion mark. These men reasoned that mining gold was not the solution to the modern world's fantastic needs. The gold-producing areas of the free world were not too numerous. Once you name South Africa, which mines a little over a billion in gold a year, which incidentally is three-quarters of the gold mined in the free world, you might add the names of Australia, New Zealand, America, and Canada. Then you've just about had it. The demand for industrial gold has been increasing at the rate of 20% per annum for several years. 
some gold mining officials pointed out. Within 10 years, the demand for inter-industrial gold would equal the free world output of gold. And the amount of gold that Russia has is a Kremlin secret. Some of our mining officials declare it cost the Russians $105 an ounce to mine their gold. The Red Chinese gloat on the fact they've been hoarding gold for 10 years and have sufficient to weather any storm. But frankly, they've little room to rejoice, for a new system now in the making to meet the world need can certainly not be a metallic basic background or currency of gold. Truthfully, to be realistic, the world's output of gold seems small compared to the astronomical figures in which modern man is now involved. The gold rust years of Alaska produced only 400 million in gold in 40 years. The gold rush days of old Australia only produced 500 million in gold in a 10-year period. If you examine a period of 400 years, from the late 15th century to the 20th century, you would see a world that produced only $17 billion in gold. What is this to a world in an atomic military age, a world spending $200 billion in arms and armies in 12 months? This would make a chain of dollar bills going to the moon and back almost 30 times. What is 17 billion in gold or 117 billion in gold to a world that has now reached the fantastic hour of exploding population? Few people understand the depth and the excitement of exploding population. It took a thousand years for our world population to reach one billion. It took only 80 years for it to come to the second billion and 30 years to reach the third billion, which brings us approximately to the present moment. In 15 years, we'll add a fourth billion, and by the time my son reaches retirement age, another billion will be added to world population every 36 or 40 months. How can any system serve an exploding population which adds a number equal to the population of USA every 42 months? And that is what we face right now. The new system cannot be gold. Frankly, it cannot be paper. Paper is becoming as outmoded and obsolete as the heavy metals of the ancient past. The life of the American dollar, for example, is only a few months, and the day for paper is rapidly fading. The Bureau of Printing and Engraving in Washington would not object, probably, to the constant replacement of tons of paper dollars if the demand would never increase. But the volume of paper is increasing so astronomically, man must search for another system. Let me give a simple illustration from the Office of Internal Revenue. In 1940, the office processed 19 million forms. By 1950, 89 million forms. Now, a hundred and some million forms. And from the business, 350 million forms. And this is taking place all over the world, from Tokyo to Toronto, from London to Los Angeles. You hear the cry from the world's bookkeepers, they're burying us under a tidal wave of paper. Ah, but this too is now changing. The computer is taking the place of the page. Yes, it is not only the space age. It is not only the atomic age and the age of automation. We have come to the fantastic moment of the computer age. 
A computer can take a 10-digit number and multiply it by another 10-digit number in a millionth of a second, but that's really nothing. A large computer may flash on its screen 180 million characters in one second. The new world money system will involve basically two things, a number, which will be a special drawing right, and a computer, which can spell out what men can draw and when. We have chosen to call the title of this address The New World Money System, only for lack of a better title, and in order to elucidate clearly by way of comparison. Just as, for example, men talk about paper gold, which is neither paper nor gold, but only a number or a figure stated on the nation's drawing right. So, some of the most respected leaders in the international field are right now declaring the SDR special drawing rate will be scaled down from the international level to the national level and from the nation's use to the individual's use. In the eyes of many economists seeking to cope with present-day money problems, this new system spells the answer to the world's need. Already much progress has been made both in experimentation and refinement. A phone will be installed in the individual home, not for the purpose of socializing with the neighbors, but to carry a code card bearing the individual's number for his special drawing right. The phone attached to the computer carrying the individual's record does the rest, declaring with finality what that individual may or may not draw according to his SDR, his special drawing right, which now we refer to as paper gold. As I speak to you on this occasion, it is not my intention to advocate or recommend a new world money system, nor have I come to criticize what is taking place. I have rather come to analyze and seek to advise and encourage you toward the only path of safety and security. What is happening in our world today is not the immediate result of some sudden impulse. It is rather a plan and system methodically developing over several years. While we lived in Zurich, Switzerland, we absorbed the thinking of the gnomes of Switzerland. While we lived in Brussels, we heard the quotations from the lips of the leaders of the world and the European common market. I heard the leaders answer the question, do you plan to cancel the old existing currencies? The answer was an unhesitating yes. We must establish one universal medium of exchange. I have sat for hours in conversation alone with men chosen to advise the President of the United States. I have added their words, I have weighed their deductions, I have examined all of their sayings, and it's one message. We are moving toward a world system, a number system run by computers that one day will be under central control. And when will it come, you ask? I believe I have an answer, logic and clear. If we follow the immediate tempo of inflation and exploding population, you can almost measure yourself and determine when the new system will come. If you turn your eyes, for example, on Britain and examine her economy, what do you see? A pound that one day in 1930 was worth $4.86. By September 22nd of 1931, it had dropped to $4.22. By September 25 of that same year, it fell to $3.80. 
By 1949, it was $2.82. By November 18 of 1967, it went to $2.40. But the problem is not confined only to Britain. Brazil has devalued her currencies dozens of times. Chile, scores of times. Asia, even worse. Every major power in the world has devalued several times since World War II. Even the Russians have sliced the ruple several times. Devaluation, you know, is the same as inflation. And inflation is the one economic disease that spells certain death to economies of any land. Let me give you now a simple illustration of what is happening in America. If in 1937 we chose a family of four and allowed them $30 a week for their standard of living, by 1947 the same standard would be met only with $43 a week, in 57 by $72 a week, and today $100 a week. Friend, this is not creeping inflation. There is not a conversant being in the world with whom I've spoken who would argue or controvert that such inflation would not bring soon a new system and take the world presently beyond the point of no return regarding the old systems. No longer in any circle is the question, is a new system coming? The question is, when? If you study the inflationary movements of the entire world, you say the new system is not far away. And the world is affected by the action of America, for the currencies of the world revolve around our dollar like the planets around the sun. In seven treaties and alliances, America already is committed to almost 43 nations of the world through CETO, NATO, CENTO, ANZUS, and private alliances. We have already, through food for peace programs and military aid, spent billions of dollars in helping other nations to whom we are even now committed. But in spite of all of America's efforts, and in spite of all the funds expended, I do not overstate when I declare there are a billion people this moment that know the hunger pangs of real hunger, especially I am speaking of the crowded countries of Asia. Since I've been speaking to you these last few minutes, 6,600 new babes have been born in this world. Certainly we will allow for the number of deaths over 3,000, but even with this allowance, there still has been added to world population since I began my address over 3,300 new lives. You need not be a numismatist, nor a demographer, nor a philosopher to know where we're headed and even to know the timetable. Wherever I turn, I hear the comment of one world. Wherever I move, I see the effort being made toward a world church, a world control of military might, the world educational system like UNESCO, a world bank, and now a number system run by computers giving drawing rights to the individuals of the world. But now, let me startle you with something fantastic. A report I hold in my hand which is almost unbelievable. A report written by a man who describes with absolute clarity and with detail the world church, the world control of military might, the world educational system, and in detail the world's new monetary system, a description, a report written by a man who lived 
2,000 years ago. Why, you say, incredulous. If it is true, why, that is miraculous. And I answer, it is true. And believe me, it is miraculous. But who is this man, you ask? Where has such wisdom come from? Where can it be found? The answer is, the writer is John. His writings are found in the prophetic words of the last book of the Bible called the book of Revelation. But if all this is contained in those sacred writings, you ask, why do more people not know about it? My answer is sadly this, because many today have turned their back on the Bible. In a great number interrogated in our land, 53% could not name even one of the four Gospels. Interrogating a thousand high school students, we learned only one in eight could name even three of the Ten Commandments. And only one in 38 could name three of the Old Testament prophets. One-third of the Bible is prophetic. Prophecies are not revealed to the careless readers who consider the writings worth only a superficial glance. If you say the writings and the prophecies of the Bible are mysterious, I answer, they are mysterious, but not too mysterious. The Apostle Paul says, without controversy, great is the mystery. But he also adds, I show you a mystery. What is more exciting, I ask you, than a mystery solved, than a hidden truth brought to light with clear revelation? Now let me give you a classic example as I read directly from the book of Revelation, chapter 13, words written by a man called John 2,000 years ago, and I quote, I stood upon the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you say that's beyond any human comprehension, I would answer quickly, it is God's way of teaching us by symbolic language, by figurative words. But the mystery is not so deeply hidden, you cannot understand it. In contrast, even the angel says to John, when giving him the revelation, I will tell you the meaning of it. There are laws that one must obey when he's reading the Bible, and one of the first laws pertaining to the study of prophecy is, no prophecy is of any private or singular interpretation. The Scripture says we understand by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Following this very basic law, let me read the same passage now. I stood upon the sand of the sea. A few chapters farther, we read in verse 15, Revelation 17, the sea and the waters are the people. That is plain. I saw a beast rise up, 2 Peter 2.12, the man who speaks evil against deities or God is like a beast. Now we have rising out of the masses of people, a man speaking against God and acting in the place of God. Seven heads, you read in Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, the seven heads are seven mountains. And you read regarding the ten horns, chapter 17, verse 12, the ten horns are ten kings. Not really kings, for it says, these have no kingdoms as yet, but they receive power as kings, one hour with their leader. 
What could be plainer? My child can understand this. Once you have the key to the prophecy, it's as clear as crystal. I stood by the sea of humanity, saw a man rise up out of the masses, ten divisional heads under him, and his seat of authority is in a city that rests on seven hills. Ah, this is only beginning. We go on with great clarity and understanding in the same chapter. We read, this man, world leader, has power over every kindred, every tongue, and every nation. Verse 7 tells us he has power over the military. Verse 15 tells us he has power over the world church. Verse 16 tells us he has power over the world monetary system. Now let me quote. He, this leader, causes both all, small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a number that no man can buy nor sell save he that has this number. How tremendous. And what will happen to the old currencies when this new system is established, you ask? Let me read from the same Bible that I have been quoting from that describes in clarity the new world system. You read in the Bible, in chapter 18, the merchants of the world will stand and cry, Alas, alas, in one hour our great riches have come to naught, for no man buyeth our merchandise of gold. Do you want another passage? Then turn to James chapter 5 and read in the opening verses. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that are come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver are cankered, and the rust of them is a witness against you. You have heaped to yourselves treasures in the last days. How clear, how wonderfully riches, gathered riches that suddenly are canceled. Eat the flesh of men as fire, when they see their treasure cannot buy them the things in life they need, for the old system is canceled and is no longer a medium of exchange. Man cannot eat gold, he cannot wear gold. The new medium of exchange will be a number system because the word of God says it, and the old systems will be suddenly kept because the Bible declares it. Now in closing, let me answer this question. The one great question on your heart is, what can I do? What does this new system mean to me? The Bible, the same Bible, tells us great sorrow lies ahead for the world, not only in the number system, but in the great conflict that will finally close this age with the battle of Armageddon. The same Bible tells us armies of 200,000 men will march. I'm quoting Revelation 9, verse 16. An army so great, 200 million men, and a third of humanity being destroyed. Go on. The same Bible tells us at the end of this age, the Jews return to Palestine, struggles with the Arab world, not only missiles and satellites in the heaven, the Bible says fearful sights and strange signs in the heavens, confusion on the earth with distress, men loving pleasure more than God, children disobedient to parents, great increase in knowledge, so-called teachers ridiculing the word of God and despising the old paths of faith. I could go on and on if time permitted. A third of the Bible is prophetic, history in advance, 
telling us exactly where we stand on the economy of God in his plan for the ages. You say a dark picture, but there's a bright side. Can I advise you toward the bright side? No, I would never dare, but I can read to you from the same Bible. Let me give you the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust doth not corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There are treasures in earth much greater than gold and silver, eternal treasures that will not fade. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, You must be born of God's Spirit, or you will not see nor enter the kingdom of heaven. In Galatians 6 we read, Be not deceived, God isn't mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. At best, the earthly treasures fade and vanish. At best, you take nothing with you in your cold, dead hand when your body lies in the coffin and covered with a shroud. At best, when you are laid to rest in the clay, the most you can say you own is six square feet of earth. Listen, is this all that God meant for you? Of course not. Deep in your heart you know you have a soul, and the Bible is true when it says, one soul is worth all the wealth of the world. You can open your heart to the Savior if you have not done so before. You can put your hand by faith in the hand of the one who created the gold of the Klondike and the silver of the Mexicos and the rubies of the Maharajas. I say you can place your hand by faith in God's hand this moment. And you can bow your head with me and pray this simple prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, if you died for me, I'll live for you. And I now this moment open my heart and I invite you to come in to my heart and life. And I have the promise of your word in John 1 and 12. As many as received you, you gave them power to become the sons of God, even to as many as believe in your name. And Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving your son Jesus to die for me. All other things will be added for time and for eternity. I mean this prayer. I know you hear. I thank you for it. Amen. Friend, the world may change. The boundary lines may be warped and twisted. Systems may vanish and new systems dawn. But the Bible is a source of faith that has never changed. Even as Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but his word will never pass away. His promise is to you, if you walk with him, God's promise to give you his blessing now and riches eternal. But time is running out. If you're going to serve Jesus, to build a church, build it now. If you're going to give to missions, give now. While the dollar call currency in your hand is worth the souls of man, it can send the gospel to heathen lands. It can build a church in your own town. It can be treasure laid up for you in heaven. This is not my advice. It's the advice from the printed page of the book of books. 
that speaks in prophecy of a new system that'll rise and die with the fading sparks of an age. And the same Bible that tells you as a child of God, you can open your eyes to a new world, step on shore and find it heaven, take hold of a hand and find it God's hand, breathe new air and find it celestial air, feel invigorated and find it immortality, Step from storm and tempest to unbroken calm, to awaken, to find it home, and to hear the God of the ages and the Savior of man say to you as a steward in your probationary walk from earth, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord, prepared for you from the foundations of the world. God bless you. I thank you.